Hey guys, Tony Reed here. Now we all know spring is right around the corner and you're going to need plenty of podcasts on your playlist for those long hours in the field. The one podcast that I'm going to recommend is Farm for Profit. Tanner, Dave, and Corey do a phenomenal job of having a wide range of guests on their show. It might be anyone from a university professor to an estate planner to a marketing analyst. They even have machine repeat on there from time to time. Then once a week, they do a Farm for Fun episode where they sit around and crack a few cold ones and kind of get off the beaten path a little bit. And those guests may come from Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, or even TikTok. It's a great podcast. You got to go check it out. They're on all the major players, Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, all of them. You can even go to Google and type in farm, the number four, profit.com and read all about them. They call themselves the mullet of podcast. Go check it out. You won't regret it. That's farm, the number four, profit. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Straightforward Farming Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Reed, alongside Mr. Nick McCormick. Nick, what's going on this week? Oh, not much. Just trying to stay warm, dodge a little of this cold weather, and uh, enjoy some of these fine guests we've got with us. I hear you there. Folks, we've got the first two guests ever in the history of the podcast sitting right here with us today. I'm going to let them introduce yourselves because there's no possible way I could even come close to giving them the introduction that they need. So let's start over here to my left. All right. Hey, kids. If that doesn't tell you who I am, then I don't know what would. But I am Bushels and Barrels, Ryan Peter, Mount Carmel, Illinois. Okay. Welcome aboard, Ryan. Thank you. Who's next? And I'm first or Montana Farmer 75, Doug Yeager, out of Shoto, Montana. Okay. So we got people from all over the U.S. literally in studio today. Yeah. First time ever. First guest ever. And as you guys are going to find out as we go along here, this is a very hard podcast to be on. It's very intense. Lots and lots of... Very exclusive. Yeah, exactly. Very exclusive. Exactly. So, uh, what do you guys want to talk about today? Anything. I'm up for anything. We got guests in the house. Let's let them pick the topic. Yeah, which, you guys drove all the way here. Tell us what you want to talk about. Yep. Well, I think we ought to let the guy that drove the farthest start... <laughs> The guy that single-handedly <laughs> he just struck me off. Trying to, <laughs> trying to keep the mileage, average mileage for the, uh, you know, it's like 2020, nobody drove anywhere because of the COVID. Doug's like, I'm going to keep that back up in 21. We're yep. getting the miles on. Exactly. So I'll, I'll set this up for maybe some of you guys who watch this on YouTube who don't follow me on TikTok. So Doug here, Mr. Montana Farmer 75, this has been, uh, it's been what, we're on the three-week cycle now, so. Six and a half weeks ago. So six and a half weeks ago. I'm sitting at home, laying on the couch on a, I think it was a Saturday night, um, wasn't going to go out. In fact, I was actually asleep, and my phone rings, okay? Didn't really recognize the number. Well, it was from the local bar in town. That's kind of weird. And they said, hey, there's somebody here to meet you. I'm like, well, who is it? And they're like, well, I don't know. There's just some guy said he's here to meet Growing Corn 2020. So I'm like, well, okay, I'll be there in a little bit. So, of course, my wife freaks out immediately that, you know, he's a serial killer and going to take me out and rape me and everything else. And I'm just flying by the seat of my pants. I'm like, it can't be that bad if he drove this far, you know. So, she always gives me this checklist. You know, okay, you got your gun with you because I'm a concealed carry holder. And I got to call Nick because Nick's a damn sight bigger than I am. Got to go through this whole checklist. And finally, I'm like, I'm just going. Who cares, you know. So, I go. And here sits Mr. Doug from Montana. He thought he would drive out to Strasburg, Illinois and... See if he could find me, and he did. Yeah. So, <laughs> more power to you. And that was six and a half weeks ago, and you've come back 
One time in between there when we all went to Mike Burkhart's sale in Washington, Indiana, and then he's back again this weekend. But he's actually en route to southern Florida. So the guy likes to drive. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. So, so, Doug, tell us a little bit about what you do out in Montana. So we're predominantly wheat and barley operation uh, on the east slopes of the Rockies there. Uh, I know it's much different than you guys, and... I don't really know where, I know you guys are intrigued by it because we raise a lot of malt barley in that area, a uh, particular area I'm in is kind of dubbed the malt barley capital of the world. Uh, a lot of that's done on irrigation. I am predominantly a dry land operator, but we still still raise a lot of malt throughout the years, even on the dry land. Okay, so how much rainfall do you get in a given year? Uh, normal year would be between 10 and a half and 12 inches. Holy cow, we get that in one rain around here. <laughs> yeah, we got that in 31st of July last year. Jenna Jameson gets that every night. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, we're kind of getting some people in here and uh, just learning about different people's operations, the way they farm, uh, just a little bit of everything. So, um, now you guys are a fallow operation, or did I say that right? So, basically, you if... Just as an example, I'm not saying Doug does this, but if, if a farmer farms 4,000 acres, you farm 2,000 of it this year and 2,000 of it the next year. Is that right? Correct. Okay. 50, roughly 50% of our product is in production. Well, 50% of it's in fallow. Uh, we do that, obviously, so that we can retain enough moisture to be able to raise a crop on the limited rainfall. Um, there, you know, there are some years that we get a little more rain or whatever that sometimes we can move that on certain pieces of ground that sure. are a little bit boggy or something like that. Okay. Makes sense. So I guess when you look at input costs, you're spreading that over a two-year period in a sense, right? I mean, to some degree, I mean, how? so how does it work out there if, if you're cash renting land? Because one year you're not farming it, so what? Correct. What you, so we, we cash rent every acre, even if you're following it. Really? Yeah. Is that at a reduced rate or you just... Well, I guess it's 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 the rate that we use, um, you know. So comparatively to you guys, yeah, it probably looks like we're only cash renting fifty percent of the acres. Okay, but we do that across the board, and then, you know, and of course, part of the aspect of a fallow operation is there's a lot of cost and time and expense that goes into keeping that fallow clean and exactly. you know, prepped and ready for another crop to go on at the following year. Yep, makes sense. I mean, and that's what's so intriguing to me. That's stuff that me and Nick and Ryan, none of us have to deal with. I mean, I had never yeah. heard of fallow land until I went on wheat harvest in 1998 and I'm I that was weird to me it's like I can't believe that's even a thing you know I read about it in the bible it, every seven years yeah exactly so that's that's just different and so you you've told me in the past too like when you cut wheat you try to cut it high so it'll retain the snowfall so the moisture so the snow don't blow away basically that's correct we try to keep about eight inches of stubble height residue on top of the ground so that we can hold that snow through the winter, um, and it's it's one to retain the moisture through the winter, but then we also use that, you know, it keeps the wind erosion and all of those scenarios down. Sure. And then we can normally keep enough of that stubble standing that we get, we create a microenvironment with that stubble, and we create the protection for that wheat that's raised on it the next year. Um, you know, and I, and I know you guys laugh, you know, because we talk about it that, you know, oh, it's just a little ice nice light breeze today at 10 to 20 mile an hour wind and you guys are freaking out like the world's gonna blow away at that rate right i know the last time you come here you called me when you were leaving montana and you had 
80 mile an hour winds with gusts to 100. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it's no big deal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a tornado where I come yeah. from. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> you fly your plane and it goes backwards. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We're pretty good shelter at that point. Exactly. Yep. So, Ryan here, he is from Southern Illinois. Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, Illinois. That's right. Down in the sticks. That's right. Yep, sure. I'm just a normal farmer here in Illinois. Just uh, corn, soybeans, wheat is what's in my rotation. I don't do any fallow ground and make a living. Interesting. Now, you got a side job, too. What's your side job? Um, I have oil production, and um, I look after that every day. I'm one of the independent oil producers, and there's many in my neighborhood. And we're just like farmers. I mean, the oil industry in the Illinois Basin, and I'm sure it's this way throughout America, is made up of a bunch of mom-and-pop oil companies. And our job is just to tend to our wells, which uh, as a farmer, would he would equate that to acres. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we go out and we try to do the best we can with it and get the oil out of the ground and sell it. 2020 sucked in the oil business, but you know what? We're still here. We're still standing. And uh, oil prices are going up a little bit right now, and we're going to hang in there. So in 2020, did a lot of that stuff get completely shut down? Did it get to where you shouldn't even run a well because you got more in maintenance and running costs, so you just shut them off? Or You know, there was some of that. Um, in 2020, a lot of guys started using their tanks that they have on their leases as grain bins would for a farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of when the tank got full, you wouldn't just call the refinery and tell them, hey, come pick it up. Mm-hmm. You just, just let, let it be it. full, and you would fill the next tank down the line. Gotcha. And that's how you kind of went through that. Um, yeah, once your tanks got full, you had no choice. You had to either sell it, sure. bring in more tanks to try to keep producing, or just shut them down. And there's costs associated with shutting a well down. You always take the chance when you shut a well down, as a, especially on a water flood. But you, you take the chance that the oil might not be come back, or you take the chance that a pump might be hung that would require a rig to come in, which is pretty expensive to come in and pull a well and put a new pump down there and everything. So uh, I ran through most of my stuff. Uh, Another side hustle that I've got from the oil company that I developed was a tank trucking company where a byproduct of oil production is salt water. Mm -hmm. And we haul the salt water off for other guys that, that call us. So since I have a tank truck, if I have a lease that only makes one barrel a day over here five miles away, but... I have a lease that makes six barrels a day down here. Uh, contact the landowner, tell them, hey, your tanks are full. I have two options. One of them is to shut my well down. The other is to bring my tank truck in here. You come with me. I'll show you exactly where I'm taking my oil I'm putting in that tank, and we're going to keep your well running, and hopefully this thing rebounds. Gotcha. So basically, in 2020, from April to June, I did not sell one barrel of oil, but I did manage with all the tanks that I have on my whole company mm-hmm. to continue running. And um, I sold my first oil in July. And it was for the mid-20s, $25 wow. a barrel. I mean, it, it was awful. I mean, it, I, don't, I can't even say that it was my cost of lifting. But had you to have, start somewhere. You I mean, have to start somewhere. I mean, that, that would be, if I, I'm going to do my best here, and, and nobody, nobody will hold me to it, but I'm going to say that selling oil at $25 would probably be like selling corn at a buck fifty. Really? You just wow. get to the point where you got some bills you got to pay. You know you have the yep. inventory sitting there. You could get rid of it. You don't yep. have to get rid of it all in one day. Wow. But just try to make sure payroll keeps met. Try to make sure that your bank note is, is, is still paid up, yep. which, hey, 
bankers were awesome through that, or at least mine was. Yeah, he that he, helps. I mean, it did. He totally understood. I mean, um, I, I I can't say enough about my bank and and the guy that I deal with. Uh, he just he stood right there with me, and I know that that bank sto- stood right there. Th- Sure. With the whole well, lot of people. And, I mean, pre-COVID, if you would have told me that, you know, hey, crude oil will be 10, 15 bucks in a year, I'd have said, you're smoking heroin. There ain't no, we will never <laughs> see crude under yeah. at least $40, $45 ever again, ever. Oh, and it sure as hell did. Let alone negative. Yeah. Let alone yeah. negative. Yeah. And, and it went negative. I'll never forget this day. I made a TikTok about this, and uh, it was 42020. Yep. So 420, get high. Yep. You know? <laughs> exactly. I don't smoke weed. I never have. But that's the day you smoke weed. It right. was 42020. Oil went to negative $45. And uh, I had a couple investors of mine that are in with me on some wells call me, and they were really concerned. You know, what are we going to do? So don't worry about it. This is the end of this contract. Tomorrow, at least, it will be back above zero. I can't say it's going to be 10 bucks, Right. But it'll be a back above zero. And, you know, the thing is, is, Somebody, and I don't know who this person is, but when oil went to negative 45 bucks, somebody made some big money in yeah. 24 hours. Yeah. Because they somehow, I guess in Cushing or wherever, <clears throat> however that works, somewhere close to Cushing, had some storage where they could store the physical product mm-hmm. for 24 hours. Game and, the ne- and the next day, GameStop. It was a GameStop. Yeah. Reddit. Goddamn yeah, Reddit, Reddit crowd. Oh, yeah. shit. Assholes. <laughs> <laughs> but the next day, I think oil, I can't remember, I think oil opened up the next day at plus $3. Mm-hmm. So somebody made 48 bucks a barrel yeah. holding maybe 1,000, maybe 5,000 barrels in 24 hours. When when it got to negative 45, could you even buy it on futures? On Could, could you have went long oil? I mean... Well, you could have, but, you know, that was the last day of that futures contract was traded. Oh, the last, okay. So you, you don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, no shit. Ex- yeah. It's just like options. Sure. So the next day, yep. yeah, you could have bought oil on the board yep. for $3 a barrel. So in a situation like that, if you had people who had to get rid of oil, that you know, say they, everything was full and they were completely in a bind, were they literally having to pay people to take it? That's exactly what happened. Jesus. But now, you know, volume you know, how many contracts were traded that day? Mm-hmm. The volume was really low that day. Mm-hmm. It's not like 90,000 contracts right. got traded that day. There might have been, right? don't mark my words here, I think it's six or 700 contracts that got traded. So, But, but none, bunch, nonetheless, nobody like you was in the spot physically where you had tanker trucks backed up and you were having to pay people to take that oil. Right. I mean, you weren't or nobody mm-hmm. in your, okay. No, I, if that was the case, shut your wells down. Yeah, I mean, why would you? I mean, exactly. I mean, you guys are... Oil pumpers, why wouldn't you just dump in the ditch? You fuck up the environment every other way. <laughs> so try to get in the ocean, please. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah truck, it, truck it to the ocean yeah. and dump it in there. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to get a couple white doves and rub that in them, too. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> then I shoot a Dawn commercial, clean yeah. it all up. <laughs> no, I'm kidding you. I love crude oil. I love all the products. It's a phenomenal product, and so I'm just I'm just ribbing him a little. Oh yeah, so. exactly, exactly. And and I love oil. I, I it's been something that is it, it has so many similarities as a producer as what as it does to my farm. Right. You know, and I'm sure it would be with your farm. It, it just it's just 365 days a year. To me, geology Work. and all that stuff with getting stuff out of the ground that's you know a thousand feet below your feet. That they have the technology to know we need to drill right here, 
it's just amazing to me yeah. how they can do all that and know that, okay, right here's where we want to drill. And I know that every hole hits, but I mean, for the most part, you know, that shit's expensive and they got a pretty damn good idea well, that we're going to hit or they would That's wouldn't. exactly right. And you know what? That's the other reason, though, that there are a few operators, but many operators don't just take upon drilling a well by themselves. Right. You go out and you find right. people to invest with you, right. spread the cost out. That way, if it doesn't work out, yeah. at least individually, you don't take such a hard Exactly. Hit. Exactly. So. Yep. Um, now, do you guys have oil out in Montana where you're at? I mean, is there much? There, there's some oil production in our area. Uh, most of that stuff lays about 20 miles north of me, and it sounds like it's similar type production as to what Ryan's running in his area. Sure. Because you're, you're what would you be, like 800 miles on west of, like, Williston, North Dakota, where the big oil? Uh, not quite that far. Um, I'd say probably 450. Okay. We're just, we're, I mean, we're right on the east slopes of the Rockies. Okay, gotcha. Yep, and I mean, that was a humongous hit out there, you know, when that come in. And what's that been? Has that been 10, 12 years ago now, whatever, the Roughly. Balkan? You, you know, the, I think the funny thing about that is they knew the oil was there in the 1950s, but they didn't have the technology right then to get it out of the ground. Is that right? It's that's... whenever these massive hydraulic fracturing yep. came on. You know, fracturing is not something that's new. Right. America's been fracking since, I think yep. it's the early 50s. No kidding. But the volume and the, and the massive size of these fracks. <laughs> yeah, that's, is, that's crazy. I mean, it. Yeah. Yep. So, when and where was the first oil well drilled? Do you happen to know that? The first oil in the it, world or in the United States? Uh, either or, because I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> a great question. No, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just happened to be right behind my. Right uh, on my <laughs> farm. Um. <laughs> no, uh, I, I had a uh, very interesting con. Uh, comment today on one of my TikTok threads, and a guy said, when and where was the first oil discovered? So that prompted me to get online and start doing some research. And I, in a half hour, I think I blew my mind more reading and trying to research where that actually happened mm -hmm. than what I, to this point in 15 years of being in oil that I've ever realized. And, and so what I learned was the first oil well that was drilled was not even for oil back about 347 years after Jesus walked the face of the earth. That's unbelievable. It was in China. Damn China. Chinese got it all figured out, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> and I'm sitting here like, is, was China a country back then? I mean, I assume, I assume they were. Hell, I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell shit. I don't know. But anyway, so these guys weren't drilling for oil, though. They were drilling for salt water because they needed salt. Because you, obviously, you know, you salt cured ham, you salt cured everything back then. Mm -hmm. And it, they found it really convenient that they would drill for salt water in this cool substance came up with it that was flammable. <laughs> there you go. They were immediately thinking gunpowder, didn't they? Yeah. In the Chinese. Yeah, they had fireworks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, it makes you wonder, though, how they realized that there was salt water down there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what their That's, technology was to figure that um, out. So what did they drill it with? I mean, they did obviously didn't have some... Bamboo was what I read. No, I, China, they had a lot of people... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. bamboo until they got there. Exactly. That one guy was trying to dig to China. Probably had a bunch of fucking yeah. kids do it too. Yeah. Goddamn child labor. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder what they were paid. Yeah. Exactly. I'll bet it wasn't minimum wage. Yeah. Probably yeah. COVID. Yeah. <laughs> you drill this, or I'll give you COVID. Love you yeah. need on that. Give them up to fifteen dollars an hour. <laughs> but no, they, so they're pulling this salt water up out of the ground with this mysterious. Fluid comes with it, and it's flammable. So they used it. They, they would light the oil on fire, 
to evaporate the water out of the salt water to end up with the salt itself so they could use the salt. I'll be dang. So that blew my mind when I read that's, that. That is. Yeah. That's crazy. And I cross-referenced that with a couple different places. You know, you can read anything. Like yeah, that, so right. I, I think I've got some pretty good information there. Yep. That's true. Now, and maybe none of us here know, but I was thinking I read somewhere, we need to get a fucking laptop set up down here. We can Google this shit as we go. But we'll push pause. Was, wasn't, <laughs> yeah, wasn't it... Was it like in the 30s or 40s when they hit oil in the Middle East for the first time? Um, it wasn't all that long ago in the realm of things. No, I, th- I think you might be right on that. And I don't remember if it was Iran was one of the first. I don't remember. There, thir- of the 1930s and 40s? Yeah. Somehow or another, over in the Persian area, they knew there was oil there because of oil seeps, where it's naturally coming to the top of the ground. Okay. Uh, commercial production, yeah. That's whenever we went over there and found it for them or okay. at least helped them get out of the ground. Right, exactly. But no, when it comes to the United States, um, Edwin, what's that? 1909. In the Middle East, 1909? Yeah. Okay. See, we got a computer. Yeah, I didn't know if we could get signal down here. Persia. Persia, yeah. Iran. Yep. See, I was kind of close. Exactly. Right? Sure. You know? um, but in the United States, is uh, 1857 or 9. And seven. that was your... Your grandpa was John Rockefeller's. <laughs> <laughs> Great grandpa. Okay. Gotcha. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you know what the shits of it is? That was one great grandpa. The other great grandpa is uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Are you so serious? I, hell, I had it yeah. on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I produced oil and I yeah. moved it. Yeah. There you go. Some guys get all the breaks. Yeah, go look. <laughs> but wouldn't that have been crazy, though? I mean, a guy like Rockefeller that made literally become the richest man in the world from yeah. a product that. You know, and he had the foresight to see that, you know, we want to refine this stuff. I don't give a shit about drilling it. I want to refine it. Mm-hmm. That's where the money's at. You oh, know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. All the the risk is off of you at that point. Right. You're relying on the people that went out and found it. Now exactly. you're just going to buy it off of them, refine it into a product that everybody can use. Right. Send it down the line. And right. move it with a pipeline because the train people got fussy. Yep. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I read something the other day, and I don't know if it's accurate. I didn't cross-reference it because I didn't have the time at the time, and I keep forgetting to go back. But I read this deal that... John Rockefeller actually paid a marketing company to get it termed fossil fuel so it would seem like it was very finite to drive the price up. I have been prior to that it was just called oil. And Rockefeller is the one that got it deemed fossil fuel. So that Because so see, could, I was uh, saying earlier, I still don't believe this shit come from fossils. Do you realize how many the, fossils that would take for them? Take a lot. Yeah. For the billions of get, or barrels of oil that's been pumped. Okay. Ever. So here's where it comes from. Okay, you fill us in. You're the one. You tell us. You're ready. Okay. I want to know. <laughs> Unless the books I've read are wrong. Okay, which they could be, but... <laughs> no, no, I'm <laughs> Honestly, oil is just formed from decomposed sea organisms, and most of it is, is um, plants. Mm-hmm. Like um, ancient algaes that grew. Uh, some of it is small, small insects. Most of it's single-celled organisms that lived back 350, 400, 500 million years ago died, fell to the bottom of their shallow ocean, got covered up, and you just get layers and layers and layers on that, and then it all gets covered up, and the heat of the earth does what it does, and it turns it into oil. But as for, like, drilling into dinosaur shit, no. That's not what happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with the theory that I was taught at some point in time, and that when you put an aquarium or a tellarium together for, you know, in your house for your kids or whatever, you put a certain amount of things in it, and God put oil in the ground. For us later. That's, That's my theory on it. 
Might have been from sickle cell organisms, but I don't think it was from some T-Rex that couldn't scratch the back. That's how I am. I don't think it quite comes from dinosaurs. Could be wrong, but I just don't get the... Well, the Jurassic period was 65 million years ago, and we drill through that period going down here in the Illinois Basin looking for oil. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So we go past that. So what's a a good well in Illinois produce? Ten barrel? One barrel? I have no idea. I what's, mean, what's I the price? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Which I know that's a loaded question. Negative forty-five. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, you don't have to tell me any of your personal business. Don't misunderstand no, no, me. No, no, no. I mean, as you know, I mean, is a good well in your area considered, you know, ten barrel? I mean, uh, that's a damn good well. That's a, okay. I, most of the wells in the Illinois basin here, and I'm only speaking for the Illinois basin. I can't speak for anything in Texas, North sure. Dakota, any of the. The places any, I can only speak for what's in my area. I, if you have a five barrel well, you got a damn good well. Isn't Illinois like the fifth or sixth largest oil producing state? No, no, not it's that. not. No, I think like maybe back in the 40s, it okay. was okay, uh, but no, not now, okay. Because no, I know like we're, a, like we're the last, really, yeah, okay, I'm sure. Well, Us or Michigan. Texas. Well, yeah, I was going to say we're last and everything else, yeah, so why wouldn't it be home for And it's Prisker's fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can tap him. <laughs> no, I was looking on the internet, it's probably been two or three years ago, and it actually had a map of all the active wells in Illinois. Yeah. And it's like, holy shit. I mean, you get south of us. I mean, there's a fair amount north of us, but south of us, it's like the entire southern half of Illinois was just green with these little dots of southeast. Well, well, yeah. Southeast, yeah. That's it's, the way the basins laid down. Um, and you're talking ancient stuff. But we're going to, honestly, to try to explain this on right. the podcast, I, there's no way. You almost right. have to visualize this. But, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's the heart of the basin. It's right there, uh, White, Can- White County. Excuse me, Wayne County, Edwards County, Wabash County, that's on the Illinois side. And then you could jump over on the Indiana side with like Gibson, Vandenberg, Posey. And it, and it reaches a little bit down into Kentucky as well. But yeah, that's not to say that's where the only oil is found, but that's where the bulk of it has been found. Now, how deep, and I know this is another loaded question, but what, I mean, what's an average well depth where you're at? Like where, where I'm at, okay, so you, you go by rock layers. That you're looking when you look for oil, you go by a rock layers, and the, all these rock layers are named by where they outcrop, where they where that rock layer comes to the top of the soil. So, uh, an easy one is we have a St. Louis limestone. Okay. okay, the St. Louis limestone comes to the surface of the earth at St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, if I were to look for that exact same layer of rock underneath where I live, I'm going to drill about 2,900 feet. No kidding. So that's the dip of the basin right there. Wow. Yeah. And so is that why the oil is there? Because it is pooled Well, there? yeah. Something, and I have never had a, there has been St. Louis wells around my place. I just use the St. Louis because everybody knows where St. Louis is at, and that's an easy way to explain it. Mm-hmm. But, yes, there's there's multiple zones, that uh, layers of rock, that's what a zone is, that you drill through whenever you're looking for oil. And the only reason oil is there is it got there and it could not get any farther closer to surface. Oil floats on water. Everything down there is wet. So... You made a TikTok here a while back, and I'd never heard it explained this way. So I assume when you drill for oil, you're going to find this big lake of oil under your feet. But you said, no, that basically there's this big rock, Mm -hmm. and you're looking to get in the hole. you got porosity and permeability inside that rock. Yeah. It's like a sponge that's underneath any kitchen counter. Yep. That sponge has porosity and permeability. It has the ability to hold fluid. And... That fluid can move between the pores of that sponge. Well, the pores in that rock is the exact same thing. When you squeeze that sponge, you apply pressure. That's what moves that fluid. Mm -hmm. Well, the pressure inside those rocks 
come from a few different ways. Number one is the layers of rock that's on top of that. Mm-hmm. It can come from the water that's underneath it pushing up, pushing that oil up. Or it can also come from natural gas that's naturally within that zone. And whenever you drill a hole right down into that rock, that's your low pressure point. All the pressure around it pushes that fluid towards that hole. I'll be dang. So that's that's what's so amazing to me. The science behind yeah. all that and how you can make all that come together. It's just it's mind boggling. So you were asking earlier, like where how do we know where to drill? An easy way to tell you is like you obviously saw the map where all the dots were where everything mm-hmm. has been drilled. You start looking at those dots. And you say, okay, well, uh, at 2,500 feet, they, they said they found a little show of oil. It doesn't mean it's commercial, but they found a show of oil here. Well, what was the next dot over 660 feet? What did they find? Well, it was nothing there. Well, okay, that was east. Let's go west. Mm-hmm. What was there? Well, that's never been drilled. Hmm, wonder if that develops there. That's where it starts. So how do you know to not go any deeper? It's because of that rock formation? Well, that mind you, you can go deeper. You mm-hmm. might find oil at 2,500 feet, and if you keep drilling, you might find oil again at 2,800 feet. You might find oil again at 3,000 feet. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever we try to put together an oil deal to drill, we're unless you're in a very controlled environment where there's been a whole bunch of wells drilled around you and you just basically know what's down there, mm-hmm. You try to make arguments that, you know, okay, so we're going to drill this well. We have a chance to hit oil at 2,500 feet. We have a chance to hit oil at 2,800 feet. We have a chance to hit oil at maybe 3,100 feet. But we're going to drill to 3,500 because nobody's ever drilled down there. We got no idea. That could be your that could be your Jed Clampett story or that could be yeah. just a duster. You never can wow. tell. I'll be and, darned. And that's, that's the way, I mean... In now, layman's terms, that's the way these these deals are predicated. Now, if if you come to my land and said, "Hey, I want to drill a well right out here south of your house," what's that going to cost to run a rig per foot, or is that confidential? confidential? No, it's not confidential. So, right now, um, a lot of that depends on supply and demand. There's only in the Illinois basin. There's only so many drilling rigs, mm-hmm. um, and if there's not a whole lot of drilling rigs, but oils at a hundred dollars, they might charge you upwards of fourteen, fifteen, sixteen dollars a foot to drill. Wow. Uh, right now, given current market market conditions, everybody's trying to heal up from 2020. You could probably get a well drilled 2,000 foot for 1050 to 1250 a foot. No kidding. I'm guessing. Is that right? And I'm not in that business anymore, so I'm not keeping up with how much people are paying. Yep. But I would say if I would call a drilling contractor that I if I want to drill a well, I would, that's the number I would expect. Really, ten yeah. fifty to twelve fifty a foot. Yeah, I'll be darned. And that's while they're drilling. But drilling companies make money two ways, or they charge two ways. <laughs> they don't make much money, period. But <laughs> they charge two ways. They charge by the foot, and then whenever they're done actually drilling, they got to pull their drill pipe back out of the hole. And maybe you're going to want to test something, or you're going to want to run a wireline log. That's when you go on by the hour. And I've heard hourly charges anywhere between $250 an hour and $325 an hour. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. If you see that tower of lights on in a field, somebody's getting charged for it. Yeah. One way or the other. No kidding. Yeah. Unreal. So back to what you originally asked a minute ago. Uh-huh. Keep first, going. First oil in the United States. Yeah. Uh, Edwin Drake, 1857. It was August, I believe is what it was. And Titusville, Pennsylvania. That was the first commercial oil well in the United States. I can't say it was in North America, but that was the first one in the United States. Is that right? Yes. That's where it happened. And, and as I did my research today, <clears throat> I found out, obviously, the reason they wanted that oil is to refine it down to kerosene so people could stop, you, stop burning whale oil for yeah. light 
and burn kerosene for light. Mm-hmm. Well, whenever you refine a barrel of crude oil, you end up with, depending on how you crack it from everything I've read, you end up between 20 and 22 gallons of gasoline and only 12 or 13 gallons of diesel or kerosene. Mm-hmm. So all they wanted was the kerosene. What the hell happened to all that gasoline? Right. Gasoline was a byproduct. Yeah. Unreal. It, it was a byproduct until yep. the internal combustion engine came along. Yep. Sure enough. And they started throwing them in cars and said, yep. okay, well, we can use that now. Yep. And here we go. That's, that's crazy. Now, a barrel of oil is not 55 gallon, right? 42 gallons. 42 gallon. And yep. I just learned this today. The 42 gallons came from King Henry IV. And the 42 gallons was a measure of, of uh, transporting fish, processed fish, really? back in the 1400s. So they just had this barrel left over and like, fill her up with oil. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. That's, that's standard. I'll be damned. I, I learned that, that today. Blew my mind. <laughs> huh. Well, I wonder why it ever got switched over to 55-gallon. Yeah. Like the drums. You know, And I get that on my TikTok threads. It's like people's like... You know, there's a lot more expenses than just drilling and producing. Well, you got to have people put it in barrels. I guess people still think these rail- railways are carrying actual barrels right. of gasoline. It's just a, it's just a form of measurement. <laughs> it's exactly I mean, all it is. Yeah. But people are obviously still thinking these are steel or plastic <laughs> drums. <laughs> it's like, gosh damn, people. No wonder my TikTok went yeah. over so good. You guys yep. are fucking idiots. Yep. So, so, what do you think? What do you think people thought when these cars first come out, you know, these engines and gasoline and, you know, what are we going to, I mean, that, that was totally, because you had horses before that. So oh, like, yeah. That'll yeah. never catch on. Don't yeah, buy one. It's never a catch on. You know, the, the, you want to talk about irony. New York City was elated, elated that the automobile came along because it was going to be a, really, a relief pollution-wise. Why? There were 150,000 horses running up and down New York City streets, dropping 2.4 million pounds of shit on the road wow. every day. Yep. And the second these automobiles came along, they didn't have to deal with all that shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> so look at that. Look at the irony now. You yeah. know, oh, the yeah. cars and come along just, to reduce pollution. And, and, and all these it's... damn tree huggers want to go back to 2.4 million yep. <laughs> pounds hey, of shit I'm sitting all for on the road. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. I tell you what, it's crazy. So, since we're on the subject of geology, Doug told me, I think the first time he was here, you've got a bulldozer somewhere that most people would recognize. It's not yours anymore, but it's been sold, right? Correct. And where is that bulldozer at and who owns it? It's in, uh, well, it's in the Yukon Territories, owned by Tony off of... uh, Mr. Tony Beats, Tony off Beats, of Gold yeah, Rush. Off Gold Rush. And now, if I understood it right, you know, you didn't, he didn't come to your house and buy this dozer. I mean, it's not like you and Tony Beats are Snapchatting nope. each other. <laughs> ne- never met him, actually. Actually only missed him by about 10 minutes at the dealer's, well, at a, it was a consignment outfit that I had to consign through where he purchased it, and he left the office about 10 minutes before I got there. I'll be dang. And you said you've actually seen it on Gold Rush. Since then, I, right? I have seen it. It's a. It only appears in one episode, and it's just a short little in the corner of a clip um, that it's there. But yeah, and that was a D nine. That was a D nine H. D nine H cat. Unreal. So, and the man, the myth, the legend, Tony Beats, yeah. is running your old dozer. Yep. I thought we were going a different direction there. I thought we were going to. Uh, his dozer ended up on Tony's farm and. 
Alaska. No, we didn't go that far. So on top of having heavy machinery, obviously, bulldozers, whatever, you also farm. So tell me about barley. I know I don't know shit about it. Do you other guys know anything about barley? No, I know nothing no, about nothing. It. Nothing. So you're drinking a bush light. How much barley's in your bush light? Roughly. Roughly a kernel and a half. A kernel and a half. A kernel and a half. And Charlie, the dog's in here. I kept hearing that ringing in my head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's his goddamn... Call. It's, it's his collar. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what the fuck is ringing in here? <laughs> okay, so we got the fucking dog thrown out of here. So, you were saying that there was a kernel and a half in a can of beer. Correct, in a 12-ounce can of beer. In, of a light beer. Now... There's about two and a half kernels in, say, a full-bodied, like Budweiser beer or that. And so there's a little bit more barley used in those beers. And as you get, like, into the craft beers, obviously, there's there's a larger production of barley used, you know, in those beers that have... Anytime you get into those beers that use more barley, they have more body. Okay. So is there a difference between barley and malt barley? Or is it just all... We just call it barley, but you guys actually call it malt barley. Is that two different? So... Right, so barley is barley in a certain aspect, but we raise certain varieties that malt better than others, and, and they're bred to malt, um, you know, in times of how quick they'll germinate. Gotcha. You know, because the, the malt process in the United States is very fast. And so, you know, if, it doesn't matter if you take Anheuser-Busch, you take Coors, you take Miller. We used a fast process to malt barley in the U.S. So basically, we want to get that stuff in the vat. We want to germinate it roughly within 48 hours through the malt process, and we get it back on. So all those barleys are have been bred to have a fast germination rate so that they can get that in. And because anything that doesn't germinate within that time period becomes waste. Okay. And so so if they, you know, if they only get a 70% germination rate and within 48 hours, 30% of those that barley is, you know, becomes a byproduct. It's just not used. You know, or they or they get no gain out of it for sure. long. Now you go to Germany, a lot of that stuff over there. They use a slow malt process, and some of that stuff, they're looking sometimes five to seven days that they'll put that stuff in the vat. So they can use a lot of different varieties over there that are much slower germinating, work just, you know, make great beer, but don't fit the U.S. standard of malt and our quick malt process that we use. I'll be dang. And I had never realized, because I had never thought about it, but I've traveled a lot out west in the last 10 years, you know, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, all in places, and... I never realized how much the American farmer was actually tied to beer production. Like, take sugar beets. I ran into a guy, I think he was in Idaho one time, talked about sugar beets. And they were all being sold to the beer companies, too. And I, I didn't realize that. I, I didn't know what you use sugar beets for. but Well, so sugar is used to, you know, that's what creates the fermentation, right? Sure. So we have to feed that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's the same deal. There's been this big controversy over, you know, Miller Coors using corn syrup in their beer. Mm-hmm. Well, when you get that beer, there's no corn syrup left in it, but that's what they're doing is they're using that to ferment it to get that process right. to, to go along. I mean, it's just like you see on Moonshiners on Discovery Channel, I guess. You know, they're buying 50-pound bags of sugar and dumping. They're using corn, I guess, for moonshine. But, yeah, same same process. You know, they're dumping the shit in. I mean, they dump it in water or whatever they're doing to get it to ferment with sugar and right. yeast and whatever else. And, 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 and of course, the you know, the, to build a whiskey or something like that or a bourbon is much different, you know, because they ferment that stuff and then they run that straight to the still and that liquid sure. that comes off is now alcohol. 
as where we're taking that and we're germinating that barley and then we're actually you know then we're harvesting the malt and then that's dried and then that's what then in turn goes to the brewing process which is used and, and most all of these beers are using a whole different variety of, of different malts to achieve a particular flavor or a particular desire and you know and and when you get into like your dark beers your scottish ales your porters all of that obviously you know you got far more there goes a beer right there. Hell yeah. We're keeping you in business, man. 1.5 <laughs> kernels. And it won't be the yep, last. Kernel down match. <laughs> but, you know, so I lost my train of thought there. I did too, because I've had too me. much beer. I, I get very, <laughs> when I get a few beers in me, I lose my train of thought. So we're talking about dozers and the fucking you going, no. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so we go through the malt process. The, 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 there's a lot, it's a lot more complex process in the aspect of brewing a beer you know, versus like you watch the still. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities behind it, but yet we have differences there that in the process, most definitely. So when you raise barley, do you just take that to an elevator like we do corn around here, or does Anheuser-Busch contact you ahead of time and say, hey, we want you to grow barley for us? So for the majority of our barley production throughout the years has been directed, direct, contracted directly to Anheuser-Busch. So, so like we don't have none of that, so does like Anheuser-Busch own a, Grain terminal, correct. There. They, both Anheuser Busch and Miller Coors have facilities in our general area, so, and it's just like our normal elevator around here. There's bins, and you take it and dump it there. Correct. I'll be, you know, that'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Be like it a fucking, cool. yeah, I think I'll take this one up to Anheuser Busch and end up it. <laughs> Fuck no, we're stuck with Tate Lyle ADM. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna take mine somewhere cool, don't you? Yeah. How much you want to bet though? The probe that goes into his truck's the same way the probe that goes into our truck. How can we fuck this guy to death? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. So it's interesting you bring that up, and that's one thing that's interesting, and one of the reasons that I've always liked doing business with Anheuser-Busch is when you come in with the truck, they probe the truck, and there's a lab, and they grade the sample that they just pulled out of your truck right there on the spot. Mm-hmm. And it either makes quality, and you get to dump it, or it doesn't make quality, and you take it home. Really? And so so it's it can be a pain in the ass because... If you're off in one aspect or another, if it doesn't meet the quality aspect, you take it home. But the cool thing is, is when you pull that truck over the pit, you know what you have. Mm-hmm. It's not like hauling wheat or, and, and I think you get, I don't know the, how corn works exactly. It sounds like it's quite a little different than like we sell wheat. But I can haul wheat to town. I can dump it. They collect a sample on that. It goes to the state grain lab, gets graded, and comes back, and I get paid on that grade. Well... You know, I might take that in, and I might have sold that wheat at say four dollars and fifty cents a bushel, but now all of a sudden, you know, the falling numbers were off on it, or we didn't make enough protein, or we didn't do this, and all of a sudden here come the deducts, and all of a sudden that four dollars and fifty cent contract deducts off, and oh, here's your check for three dollars and fifteen cents. Yeah, see, around here, I mean, you take wheat to the elevator, and dump it. It's yep, it's thirteen five, whatever dry is. Dump it. You're well, good to go. But you're already unloaded by the time you even know it's 13.5 most of the yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Unless you specifically ask. The, yeah. the only stickler here, they check it for... And I'm not, vomitoxin. Yeah, vomitoxin, because a lot of the wheat here goes to semer milling and Titopolis, and they make flour, I guess. Yeah. I don't know what they... Yeah, so it's... I, would you call that food grade? I I don't know. I mean... I think all me, the wheat we grow is food grade. Yeah, so... It's just how they're going to screw you out of a few cents. Right. But nonetheless, when I dump it at my local elevator, they're not taking any samples there to say, well, seamers may or may not take this. They just check it for moisture, and that's it. You dump it, and 
you yeah. get deducted. You know, you get a, a dock, and you know, if it was fourteen percent, it's supposed to, it's wheat thirteen or thirteen five here. Thirteen five. Yeah. So if it's over, you get your moisture dockage, and that's it. But to my knowledge, there's never been wheat rejected around here. You just dump it and move not on. Unless, not unless you took it to the mill. Otherwise, yeah. at the elevator. No. You just well, you know, in my farming career, which has been almost twenty years now. I grew wheat and then I stopped growing wheat for a while, but my neighbors kept growing wheat. And there was one year, and I, this is 2021, man, time gets away from you. I'm going to say it was 2013 or 14. I don't remember which one it was. They started testing for vomitoxin and they would dock the shit out of you for vomitoxin. Really? And this is not wheat that was intended to go through my local elevator and end up at Teutopolis. Mm-hmm. It, this is wheat that you just take to the elevator like yeah. we do corn. And they would end up, I don't know if it's true, but I got a feeling it was. There's one farmer in the area said, dude, as much as they dock me, I think technically I have to pay them to take my wheat. Is that right? Because of vomitoxin. Sure. It was a year where the wheat got ripe, but then it turned off and it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained. I mean, I'm sure he was cutting wheat that probably had a 45 test weight. Sure. It was just awful, but um, that's what I know about grading wheat in my area. Right. So so what is the... The cutoff or the difference, because when I was on wheat harvest out west, that's what they would talk about. You know, constantly checking protein and, and all that other stuff. And it was all news to me. It's like, fuck, we just cut wheat and dump it at the elevator. Yeah. Nobody checks nothing. But out there, it was like a big deal. And where, where's the cutoff on that? I mean. Well, we get hit in all kinds of different ways in our particular region. Um, you know, so you brought up the test weight deal. So most of the time on winter wheat for us, um, anytime we drop under 59 pounds, we get docked on test weight. Uh, our protein's based on an 11.5 scale. So anything that's underneath 11.5, you know, we get docked by the half a percent as it moves down the scale. And so if it's an 11.4, it gets paid as an 11. And so we get docked that whole half a percent, even though it's 11.4. No kid. And, and, and it moves on down the line. Now the other side of the protein side of that is most years will have a scale up on that too. So if I cut 13 protein winter wheat, I'll get a premium for that. Okay, that's great. But which what well, like when you say premium, are you talking a nickel, ten cent? I mean, uh, what? you know, a rule of thumb over a long long term period of deal would be uh, on winter wheat, we would look at ten cents a half down, and we'd look at a nickel half up. Now, now that scale floats and moves. Sure. Um, this year, I think we were a nickel a half down, zero up. So all of our protein that we cut in our area this year, they stole from us. I'll be damned. So. You know, and I and I hauled a lot of winter wheat to town this year that you know went in at thirteen and a half uh, protein, and so you know I'd have got four halves on that mm-hmm. on a normal deal. So even at a nickel, that's another twenty cents a bushel. Well, yeah, you know yep. what was the what was the reason for that? Uh, Midwest. Well, I shouldn't say the Midwest, but Kansas and Oklahoma and those areas cut protein, and traditionally they don't. Traditionally, that's lower quality wheat that comes out of that area, so they come up into our area and, and we traditionally always produce high quality wheat in the Golden Triangle in Montana. So a lot of that wheat we'll see will will go premium because a lot of it goes to the export market. You know, Japan is hands down the most particular export buyer that we have, followed second by China. But also if we have poor quality wheat across the rest of the United States, they need something to mill that because we've got to get that wheat to a certain protein level in order for it to have a baking quality to actually be able to produce a loaf of bread with. If you go in there with eight protein wheat and you grind it and make flour out of it, you know, all of a sudden a loaf of bread that's normally, you know, what is it, five and a half, six inches tall, 
you go to make a loaf of bread out of that thing, it's only going to rise, and it's only going to be two and a half inches tall. Well, I don't think your wife's going to be very happy if she goes in there and the bread's that big. Dylan and Uncle Mike might eat it, but my God, we're going to eat it here. But so we get... Nobody's wife. So we get... So we get the, you know, we got a test weight scenario. We got a, we got a protein issue. Um, then we go into, we have we have what they call falling numbers, which ultimately bleeds back to the milling quality of that wheat. And so, so all of those deals come in. And, and the falling numbers deal is kind of a deal that just, if we make quality, as long as it's that number above, it's fine. If it falls underneath that, then same deal. Maybe instead of selling number one or number two wheat, it, it might bump you from a number one to a number two because of those. Gotcha. And so, and, and we don't, we're fortunate in our area, obviously, with 10 and a half inches of rain, we don't fight scenarios like vomitoxin and scab and some of those other scenarios. We do fight, you know, other diseases, but it's not stuff that normally shows up in the grain. It's stuff that happens earlier in the year and we lose yield and quality, yeah. you know, based upon that. See, I didn't even realize till we was eating dinner today that you guys raised winter wheat out there. I thought it was all spring wheat, but so tell us when you plant winter wheat and when you harvest it. So the majority of my winter wheat will be rate will be planted. Um, it, it's all planted in for me the month of September. I try to you know hit somewhere between the 10th and the 25th is the ideal 15 days for me to seed, and then most of the time that winter wheat will start coming off roughly the first of August. Right. So it's in around 11 months. I mean that's that's crazy. Years. Yeah. And so, you know, you go you go geographically just 60 miles from me as the crow flies. Uh, those guys, those guys, some will sometimes start seeding wheat actually earlier than I will. Some of them will get going just right at the end of August, first of September. But yet, some of those guys will still be seeding wheat, you know, clear up almost to the first of November. But they warm up quicker because they're further away from the mountains. They get a little different sun, a little different heat units, and that wheat out there will traditionally start coming off somewhere around the 18th of July. So roughly okay. two weeks ahead of us. Yep. And so it's so interesting, you know, and, I, and you guys see it here too that sometimes you only have to go 30, 40, 50, 60 miles. And even though you're all doing the same thing, it starts to change pretty quickly. Sure. Yeah, it does. Now, around here, uh, a good wheat crop is 80 bushel. That's a pretty, uh, if you have an 80 bushel average, that's yeah. a really good wheat uh, crop. I mean, I've heard of guys raising 100. Um, but it's, there we go right there. I mean, that's just money in your pocket. Yeah. It looks like you're paying yourself. It is. I mean, you can't afford not to drink yeah. this. Another kernel and a half. So, so we can back this up just a little bit on that. So the bad deal is we've talked about a kernel and a half of barley in that beer and roughly 20,000 kernels in that deal in a bushel. So a bushel of malt barley right now in, in my neighborhood that I'm delivering Anheuser Bush is bringing about $4.55 a bushel. And we're paying, I mean, even if we go out and buy this stuff at the grocery store, we're paying, what, 80 cents a can. And so... So it's back to the, the same aspect. I mean, you start running the math on that, and, you know, yeah. you, you look at what that bushel of barley's worth when it's processed. Yep. Um, and, and, and that's the aspect of all of agriculture. And oil. And, right. And yeah. so, but, you know, I'm going to take this over to the wheat side, because a loaf, of, a loaf of bread is about the same aspect that we're talking about within malt barley and using a kernel and a half. And that, and I and I should be able to tell you the number of loaves that comes out of a bushel of wheat, but I can tell you that at four dollar and fifty cent wheat, the wrapper that they put the bread in costs more than the wheat that went in to make that loaf of bread. Wow! Yeah, that's insane. 
Wow. Now, I do have to ask, do you guys have gleaner combines in your country where you're at? There's only a handful of them. Um, they're, you know, they... What the fuck is that noise? The dog scratching the door. <laughs> As you guys can tell, we're very unprofessional here. We just let shit roll. There's a fucking dog scratching on the door. Oh, there he's gone. Charlie, calm down. Charlie's rode in the back of Doug's truck all the way from Montana in literally sub-zero conditions. But he's good. He's in the house now. He don't mind. So... If he wants to scratch and bark a little, we'll let him. That's fine. So, <laughs> but now, we are going to put a stop to it if he gets carried away. <laughs> but, fuck, where was we at here? Well, can I ask a question? You can. Yeah, okay. The price of barley, is that based on the price of wheat on the CME? Or how, how do they come up with the price of barley in Montana? Well, for years and years and years, Anheuser-Busch used to just come to us and they, they offered us contract price. You okay, like now before we go any further, was there any competition like out, you know, was it just Anheuser-Busch or did you have other people be like, hey, you know, they offered you this, we'll offer you this? Um, it, it was, for a long time, Anheuser-Busch kind of owned the market in our area. Okay. Now, the, it wasn't that they're, you know, Cargill and some of those guys were in the area too and they were delivering to, you know, other elevators that were handling that product, putting it on radio and shipping it. Um, but they, and, and Coors was in the area, but Coors was about 80 or 90 miles away from us. Since then, Coors has built another plant that's within 15 miles of me as well. But So you've got a little bit of competition, but back in the day, basically, they would come out with contract price, and they'd say, you know, I mean, when we're talking that they were paying $4.50 a bushel for barley 25 years ago. Sure. And, you know, and here we are now, you know, at $4.50, I mean... Has the yield gone extra nickel? Yeah. Okay. Has the yield went up on barley since then to, like, kind of compensate for... No upward movement in the price? We, we've seen some, you know, varietal aspect like you guys have seen in corn, but right. not at nearly the aspect that we've seen in corn and beans. What, what's a good barley yield where you're at? So, I would say year in and year out on my dry land barley, I'll, I'll figure, I, I'll bank it at 60, but I always figure it at 75. And and I've cut near 100 bushel dry land barley. I've also cut 15 bushel dry land sure. barley. Um, but... So you go through the whole process, and that's what it was. So then when NBEV bought out Anheuser-Busch here years ago, the game started to change. And basically it was to figure out, well, how can we do this? And, and they came up with a couple deals for a couple years that were awesome, and they were using the wheat board and they were doing whatever, but they were, they were 24 hours behind the wheat board. And, it, and a lot of the barley guys have never had to market. You know, they just got a contract, and yeah, that sounds good. We'll take it, and then that's what they did. They raised their crop, they held it to town, they got a check, it was over with. Well, so now they started coming out with this marketing deal. Well, all these barley guys are losing their mind. They've never marketed their crop. They've never, you know, they they don't they've never raised wheat. They don't know how to market it, and so they really really struggled with it. So they came out with this deal the first year that they did it, and it was based off the Chicago Wheat Board, but the price for today was based off yesterday's board. So every day I could watch the board and the wheat board would close, but that price from the day before, even though the wheat board had already closed today, the price from yesterday was still good. So I could watch the market and the market goes up 10 cents today. Well, I'm not going to sell my wheat because it's worth my barley yeah. because it's worth 10 cents more tomorrow and I'd done a basis lock on mine. So I was just playing the, the futures board. My basis is locked. And that was, I'm trying to remember what year this was, but it was the year that wheat took off and ran and ran and ran. 
and when they first set this up, wheat was relatively low. They gave us a great plus basis on it. I locked it in. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. Exactly. <laughs> you're going to be a millionaire by the time you leave here. Yeah, I showed up. We're going to so, take care of one semi-load, I'm yeah, sure. Exactly. So, so we watched, so, you know, I watched this market run and run and run and run. And, and I knew we were at the top, but it was perfect because it's not like when we market on a normal everyday deal, you know, at some point I have to get in the game because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Well, I had a 24-hour crystal ball yeah. of what was taking place. So it was awesome. And we ran this thing up and ran it up and ran it up and ran it up. And everybody's like, how long are you going to sit on this? Don't you want to sell it? Well, why do I want to sell it? I know it's worth 15 cents more tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. So we did this deal, and so it ran all the way up, and then it hit the top in typical market. It hits the top and falls out of bed like 50 cents. So I'm sitting there. I watch the market close. It's 50 cents down. I call them. Lock my weed in. Yeah. You know, because I know it's going down 50 cents in the morning. Can, can you get those people to do the same thing with corn and beans? Because That's I would exactly love that, that strategy right. here in the Midwest. That's exactly so right. If right. you can get the Reddit guys or whoever's doing yeah. that on board, <laughs> sign me up. So, so, so there's to say, in the barley market. Yeah. They, they only did that one year. Yeah. And and so then they came that back, and now now we, now how Anheuser-Busch is doing it, Coors is doing a little bit different. But they'll offer you a one-time contract up front. If you just like the number, you can take it. Otherwise, you got to play the board. Usually the number that they're handing you is not that great a number. For those of us to play the market, it's like, eh, I think I can do better than that. So now they've created an artificial basis that they've created and, it, and then they, and it follows the Chicago Wheat Board. And so we do it. The problem is, is in years that we've had now, is we haven't had markets that have justified us to maybe do a basis contract underneath that. Like we needed both things to move. So they've created this false basis that's tied to nothing other than what they've created, right? And so we've, we've had the issue that you watch the market run up eight cents. Well, they take six cents away in the basis. Yeah. And so it's got really difficult to work with at different times in that with where they're at. And, of course, part of that configuration of how they've warranted how they do this is it's based upon bushels that are sold and their exposure and all of this other yeah. stuff. And, you know, I don't quite buy all of it, but it is what it is. So it's made that market really difficult to play and go that direction. With. Um, and then this year, you know, we, you know, you guys have followed me on TikTok have seen that, you know, I raised malt barley, we cut, you know, all of North America and, and most of the world cut number one malt all the way across the board. With the COVID deal, beer consumption being off, now we cut a number one crop. Almost everybody made it. There was very few rejected bushels across the United States. So now we've got this huge glut in the malt barley market, you know, that possibly is going to take us two, three, even maybe four years to chew through this, mm -hmm. this amount of product. So Anheuser-Busch alone, you know, they cut in our general region, 55% of last year's contracts they cut. And so, you know, and, and even this year, a lot of times we'll sell a contract and on the right year, we'll be able to sell some barley on the open market. Well, with this, you know, huge fringe over there, there's, there's no open market malt right now. Yep. A lot of times we can sell that into a Mexican market or something like that. Yep. And the, and all those are dry because these big malt houses, um, they've got so much barley, they're selling it in yep. those markets. Oh, we don't. So out in your country, and you don't have to tell me your own personal, I'm not asking your personal business, but in your general area, what does farmland sell per for per acre and what does it rent for per acre? I, I, I mean, compared to what you guys are paying out here, it's peanuts. Mm -hmm. um, you, 
and I don't even know where to go to even try to put a number on that that would be realistic, um, you know, that would even be something that most people could understand that we're outside the region. It's, you know, I guess the, the basic understanding to come back on it, so if we want to set value on that, is number one, you have to understand that we only crop 50% of those acres every year. Right. Um, and, you know, we get 10 and a half, 12 inches of rain. Yeah. So, so we, we've got very limited production on that dirt, and, right. and therefore so you see the value of that dirt right. is, you know, so like around diminished here, to you. If I said, I'm going out tomorrow buying 160 acres, so I'm going to go to the bank, I'm going to get me $1.6 million. That'll take me all the way. I'm assuming that's not the case in your area. That's going to get you a little more than 160. It, it's going to get me a little more, a, a lot more than a 160. But, but at the end of the day, um, I'm trying to think, I mean, if I just used a random number and said geographically right in my area that land is going to trade for you know, somewhere around a thousand dollars an acre. Yeah, um, I would say around which I ain't looked at our county average. I was thinking the county I live in. I think the county average here is around one seventy two or one seventy five. I think I haven't looked for a year or two. You don't have to go very far north, and that number jumps to closer to two hundred. And, and you know, that's, and that's throwing everything in the gamut from the guys that are still in my area paying three hundred, and the guys that are still you know, getting some ground red that they've had for years and years and years for 120, you know, it's but all But there's around. so much difference geographically, you don't go very far, and the land changes so much. Exactly. You know, that's that's what skews, our, our county's right? literally on the line. The north half of our county from there all the way to Wisconsin is good. The south half of our county all the way down to where Ryan lives is what I would call mediocre compared to that. It's still good dirt, but it's not as good as right. the, the north. And, and that's so. the same scenario that we play is. From, from where I live, you go to the eastern end of the county, and and they call it the Diamond Valley. I mean, it's it's that kind of dirt. And their every year in, year in, year out type production per acre is about double what we go in my area, and it's only 25 miles away. Yeah. Yep. And, yeah. and then you go from where I'm at, and you go 25 miles north, and I'll out-yield those guys by 30%. And so, so these averages are hard numbers, and that's yeah. what gets difficult. And you see these guys that say, "Well, geez, there's there's land that sold just 15 miles down the road, and they're you know they're getting a thousand dollars an acre for it." Mm-hmm. Well, that ground probably cash flows or comes close to cash flowing a thousand dollars an acre. Maybe you come over to my place. Well, now all of a sudden that land's only worth 750, and maybe right. you go north, it's worth 600. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these these numbers that come into all of this is I know, think through all of our conversations, and me and Doug talk a few times a week several hours at a pop, it baffles me on the federal crop insurance. So, and I showed you a copy of my insurance. Yep. And it is, for the most part, and you know, and it, it's always, it's going to swing a little bit because it's obviously set on the price of corn or soybeans. But I think on the particular one that I showed you from whatever year it was, a year or two ago, basically, and these are going to be round numbers, for 10 bucks an acre, I was insuring or guaranteeing myself it was just shy of six hundred bucks an acre, wasn't it? On that one, or was it five fifty? I forget. About, it was about five fifty. So for ten bucks an acre, I'm getting five hundred fifty dollars worth of coverage. And I like to fell out of my chair when you told me what you were paying for coverage. And what, so, that, have you heard this conversation, Ryan? Uh, I, Doug told me. Have, on you, the phone. have you heard it, Nick? Uh, snippets. Okay. So yeah, it's basically with what he's paying. For the coverage he's getting, you're flat getting screwed. Oh, and that's what I, I mean. I, but he's higher risk. 
He's yeah, higher risk. Is based on risk. Exactly. And I, and I see where you're coming from. At some point, I was like, I might as well self-insure because it's getting unaffordable now. Yeah. I mean... It, well, that's the deal. It, it, you know, I think I want to say you were $10.20 an acre for about $550 an acre coverage. Yeah. I'm $10.40 an acre for $175 worth of coverage. Yeah. On the same program. Yeah. And so... So you guys, I, and, I, and I get it, and, and 20 years ago in Montana, it, it was similar to like you guys were doing. I mean, we could insure a crop that, you know, we could cover our inputs. We could do that kind of stuff. I go out now, and I insure a crop, and I'm not anywhere even close to covering my inputs. Yeah. So I'm accepting a huge amount of risk, and of course, most people in the general public have no idea how much of a different animal crop insurance is versus normal insurance that we all right. deal with. Yeah. But so we do all this. And so, yeah, you guys talk about it and you've got, it's not maybe that you're going to make any money or anything, but you guys have got a pretty good aspect that you can cover yourself on this crop insurance deal. And in my opinion, I just wait for the day that I can say, piss on, I'm not doing it. Cause I would be way better off to self-insure myself versus taking that. And of course, and it really hurts when, all of a sudden, I run into the guy down the street and he said, well, Jesus Christ, doesn't matter if you had a wreck. You got, you know, federal government's subsidizing yeah. you to have federal crop. And they don't get that, that all of a sudden I've got, you know, just for round numbers, I got $200 an acre in the production costs on that. And I'm only getting $175 worth of yeah, worth of insurance. Yeah. So, you know, if I have a wreck, we take it right out of the gate. But And it's back to the same deal. You guys, are, you guys have the capability to carry 80% insurance. We can go to 85. Mm -hmm. And and so and I can go to 85, but you guys get 80% insurance and you're still on your subsidy rate. Right. I max out at 75%. If I go to an 80% or an 85%, right. it's unbelievable. And I've run the math on it. So for me to go to a 75%, from 75% to an 80%, with what I increase in premium, I only gain 30 cents an acre in insurance. Yeah. It's our, all, and it's all premium. Our insurance for for round numbers, it doubles out of out of my pocket. It doubles when I go from 80% to 85. For round, you know, not exactly, but I'm just throwing it out there for round numbers. Pretty close. It just damn near doubles yeah. for an extra 5%. And that's from 80 to 85. And hell, now they got all these goddamn weather programs. You can buy climate products. You can buy to 95% oh, yeah. or, or even yeah. more. And, and to but, me... But those... My experience on those is, if they're a decent deal this year, they won't exist next year. Yeah, they'll be a different program. That, and and they don't these side products years. are literally nothing more than going to the casino and throwing money because you're literally betting, and I, it is truly this: you are betting that it is going to rain an inch. Oh yeah! During this week time frame, and if it don't, you collect. I'm and just waiting to watch RFD and King Drafts comes on to yeah. my yeah. demographic yeah. for the rainfall. Those private products are nothing more than. A way for for me to grab your business, his business, his business, yeah. as opposed to you doing business with a different company because we all it's all the same rate for our normal products. So how how am I going to differentiate? Either my agents have to be really good, yeah. or I have to offer a private product that intrigues you. That's right. Yeah. Which this could everybody on TikTok has been up my ass about doing weather forecasts, and this could actually be my golden ticket. I'm going to start issuing these forecasts in the summer on how to buy your crop insurance. I'm fucking telling you, boys. She's going to fucking rack. We talk about racketeering. Here we are. We have made a full circle. Yeah. If, pretty much, if you're anywhere north of Iowa, don't fucking buy any of it. Yeah, we're out. Count me out. 
but it's it's just it's different, you know. And I never thought about that. I mean, I assume federal crop insurance is well, federal crop insurance. You know, growing up here, I suppose growing up anywhere, you just don't know that much. And we touched on it a little bit the other day about not knowing that much about other regions. Right. You know, what little bit I know about barley, I've learned in the last six and a half weeks from this guy right here. Exactly. Right. Prior to that, I drank it, and that's about the extent of my knowledge on yeah. barley. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's now exactly I know right. that I didn't drink as many barley seeds as I thought I had. Yeah. Let's think about this. Okay, so three of us sitting in this room are from southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. Or central Illinois. South central. Yeah, yeah. whatever you want no, to call Nowhere it. near Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Same climate. Yeah. yeah. Ten inches of rain a year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had nine inches of rain last summer when it worst the fucking bridge out here by my house. That was in one rain. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Counting the previous no. 36 that I had. <laughs> I know it. When he told me that figure right there of their yearly rainfall, it blew me away. Yeah, that's... So if it's raining at your house, that's a pretty big day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. And, and we only get... And so we get 10 and a half to 12 inches of precipitation a year. And you guys talk about rain. Of course, we talk about precip because a fair amount of that comes in snow. Yeah. Yeah. But in our actual growing season, right geographically where I lay, we get five inches of rain during the growing season. That's what we get. And so... You know, that might come along in some nice little half-inch rains, and we pick up a half-inch here and three-quarters there, you know, a couple temps. And and I cringe when we get those ones that it pulls in and rains two and a half or three inches in a single shot. Because you're, you're like, shit. Done. Yeah, and, and it doesn't matter. I mean, I've watched it throughout the years. And, yeah, sometimes we have better rain years, but year in and year out, we get five inches of rain. And if it rains two and a half inches on the 10th day of June, I just used up half of my allotment for the year, basically. It's yeah. almost like calling the irrigation district and being like, yeah. Send me half my water, and I guess I'll just hope the rest of it comes along when I need it. Yeah. And and so we, we do, we cringe at those big rains. And, and this year, we had a fair amount of rain in May, pretty early in our season. It, 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 it cut me from getting in the field. We struggled to get in. We, we had to run on ground when it was way too wet. We didn't want to, but we just didn't have enough. We were out of days. We were at a point we just had to run. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quad, if you got a quad track, you can start at least eight days early. You well, might bury it to the frame, but you can at least start eight days early. I'm going to tell you guys something, and I got video to prove it, and I'll show it to you after this if you want to validate it. So I've got a 450 horse articulated tractor, and I've got basically a 500 horse articulated tractor. And one of them's got triple 20.842s on it, and the other one's got 71038 duels. And we had those two tractors tied together with an inch and a half cable this spring to pull a 50 foot drill. Oh. Ouch. So when you're talking 950 horse on a 50-foot drill, and and I've got a video, and you'll think that we didn't, we almost didn't make it through one spot as it was. How was it too wet? You don't get any rain. I mean, yeah. but but, that, but that's a deal, and I've seen it that way, and that's kind of what happened to us this year is we had to run on wet ground. We had to do all that, yeah. and we dried out, and that ground baked. I can tell you on a lot of acres, I gave up 12, 15, 18 bushel an acre yeah, I can see that. because mm-hmm. of conditions. Yeah. It was too wet. We ran on it. We we knew it was too wet, but we didn't have any choice, yep. and and we just had to go. And So and, only, only getting five inches of rain, you don't get a random Tuesday during spring or fall where it rains. You're like, well, I wasn't going to the bar, but I got to check in with the neighbors. So <laughs> since it rained, we got the time. I'm going to stay yeah. there for 30 well, minutes. We get a, yeah, we get a random rain at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you know, I'm that guy, and I mean... You know, obviously, I'm single, but, you know, if there's a gal in my life or my friends or whatever, if it's raining at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, you know, your phone number's ringing. I'm like, hey, we're showered out. Like, yep. change your clothes. We're going to town, boys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'll tell you what, around here, if you want five inches of rain, fold the planter up and leave the field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what it's been like the past three years for rain. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, hey, guys. We've unpacked everything between Doug and Ryan here. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. We're going to cut this one off here, but don't go anywhere. We're going to do another episode of where we're just going to sit around and just shoot the shit about anything and everything. Now that you guys know who they are, where they come from, we're going to get a little more relaxed. So thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then.